Well, here's the deal. I'm, um, I'm going to rave about a number of things, and I'm going to talk about some practicalities having, I trust, laid the foundations of theological principles of where I am and where we need to stand and so on. And I'm going to throw it up for an extended question time. There's a million directions we could go, and I want to be led in part by you as you want to have things dealt with. So if you want to discuss things, let's do that together. Um, let me um, remind us. Uh, so caught by, caught by Matthew 28, gospel to all nations, Ephesians 1, all things drawn together under Christ, the great vision of revelation with all the nations gathered around Jesus, that massive and exciting uh, and, and very large vision, asking the questions, why aren't we seeing more? And then secondly, are we contributing? As leaders and Christians, are we part of the problem uh, pursuing that question? And um, this second part is is as simple as acknowledging that we are. You and I are contributing massively to the inability for the gospel to reach our communities. And we need to own that uh, and not retreat into... It's God who gives the growth, I'm just faithful. Because the just faithful bit, the just bit, is not biblical. We are to be faithful, but we're to be faithful with a gospel that is God's purpose to save, to see a response, to be caring about numbers. Uh, And so we have to keep asking the hard questions, why aren't we seeing converts? So if you've been in a church that you haven't seen anyone convert it for 12 months, what is going on? What is going on? Um, and in fact, you could even broaden that question and ask, uh, have we seen anyone change their life in this church in the last 12 months? Has there been any maturing of a person happened in the last 12 months? If you're not giving, If you're not getting... Changed lives, conversion being the most dramatic, of course. Like, what is going on in your church? Yeah? Because the expectation of the gospel is that it will bring people to salvation and change their lives. Um, a friend of mine talks about a lot of our small group work, which we give, many people give it the name growth group structure. But he says in many places it needs to be called the ungrowth group. Uh, because his research is showing that we're not seeing people grow spiritually in our churches at all. Um, now, why is that? Uh, well, at, at a basic level, it's a spiritual problem. We don't get the gospel ourselves as leaders. Um, we don't get the key to the ministries of our work, which is the gospel. We don't get it. Uh, and because we don't have it as the core of all we do, We don't have it in the core of what we do, and so it doesn't flow out of us to others. And the fact is our churches are often not word-saturated because we're not word-saturated. There's not a culture of prayer in the word. Preaching has become very different to expounding the life-changing gospel message into live coaching sessions and so on. Our small groups aren't saturated in the word. They've become prayer and share groups. They've become problem-centered. They're so busy doing life together, they've got no time to be committed to the word of God's grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance amongst the saints. That's not happening in our groups. 
In fact, I, um, we have to keep helping our groups if you've got groups functioning uh, and you ought if you haven't. Uh, so I spent some time with our leaders the other week raising the question of um, we need to keep pursuing what is helpful, not what feels helpful. What is helpful, not what feels helpful. And so it was a fruitful discussion amongst, uh, this was leaders of, a, of just our midweek daytime groups, we call it uh, WOW, and um, because one of my concerns has been there's a slight drift into the leaders wanting to spend more time sharing problems together. Now there's a place for that and all of that, but it feels very helpful. Everyone loves it, and so naturally there's a drift further and further down that way. And so to reflect on what is helpful versus what feels helpful um, was an important and fruitful thing to do. Um, now, uh, our church is not perfect by any means. Uh, the closer you get to our church, the more you see problems. But astonishingly, by the grace of God, we have testimony about major life change weekly. Um, it's, um, and we parade it. <laughs> we get people up to testify to a whole reorientation of life that's gone on. Is it happening in your churches? So getting a community of people to be on mission has, let me, let me, I'll take you through the, the simple structure. To get a group of people on mission, you need to fuel them with the word by discipleship, teaching, preaching, one-to-one groups, every context. Get them fueled with the word, discipleship and so on. Create a hunger and passion in them for seeing the lost one. Get them to get the reason for the church's being. That's the task. Uh, use every opportunity to keep banging away at this. Um, and thirdly, bring in a dose of reality. Let me tell you about the dose of reality. I'm doing that in part because I assume you've got the first two bits. How to bring a word-saturated ministry, how to disciple people, how to get them excited about the gospel. I'm in part assuming that, but we'll come back to that if you want to. Let me give you, we're heading into the concrete to-dos. So fuel with the word, create a hunger, and don't live with naivety. A dose of reality. Here's some of the reality things. Leaders often operate with an idealism that if we just mature people, they'll get on about evangelism. Ah, they won't. Um, we live with this idealism that if we just mature and then train them, we'll have this wonderful organic evangelistic process happening around the place. No, it won't. We have this picture of every member engaging with non-Christians uh, or a picture recently of life-on-life groups which are a apologetic for the gospel such that people are drawn in and it just doesn't work. Uh, it's, there's realities that you need to bring to bear. Um, and when we pursue these things as the key, that is when we pursue just maturing people and they'll evangelize, just maturing and training and they'll evangelize, life, when, when we pursue these things as the key, we invest a lot of energy in something that isn't actually producing. Now, why isn't it producing? Well, let me, hear, let me give you some more realities. Um, there is a reality of gifting that we need to bear in mind. Of within a church community of people, how many would you realistically expect to have the gift of evangelism? 
who can meet with their non-Christian friend over a period of time and lead them to Christ. There's, there's not many. And if you break your church down into smaller groups of a dozen to 15 who are meant to do this work, within that group there'll be even fewer opportunity to actually have someone with the gift of evangelism. So you'll have a small group who doesn't have anyone with the gift, trying to do this thing, they'll just be defeated, it'll roll down into despair. There's a reality of gifting. Except I think the uni context is a little different. I think in a uni context you can expect a higher percentage of people with uh, the ability to articulate and discuss and engage. So you've got to be aware of your context. But as I've moved out of the uni context into the local um, congregational setting, suburbia, we, we had far fewer people who could articulate, even though they had a passion. We trained them up. We went through two ways to live training and all those other activities and they got it to some degree but it just bled away. Energy and passion was there but the reality of gifting wasn't. There's a reality of the weakness of us all. Even mature Christians lack confidence and so we stir and encourage. There's energy and passion but at the point of there's fear and lack of confidence. Now, there's a reality of the non-Christian world to bear in mind as well. The non-Christian world that we're doing mission in today is a different place than it was 40, 50 years ago. Um, and uh, so Billy Graham can come out and see masses come down with his presentation and be genuinely converted. Um, the possibility today, except by an extraordinary work of the Spirit, which was certainly evident back then, uh, the reality today is that we won't see that kind of experience where someone comes and hears the gospel and is converted in that event. You will, except by the wonderful work of the Spirit, we won't non-Christians today are so far back, so far back, that the steps required to move them to an engagement with the things of Christ and an embracing the things of Christ is a massive process. Is it the Engel scale? You've got a, not unhelpfully, a recognition that you've got people, you know, at minus 10, minus 7, who's kind of um, beginning to just think that there might be a spirituality, beginning to think that God is real, beginning to think that, you see, there's a process that comes before they actually engage with Jesus is claiming to be God, come to die for you. You know, all of that is a process today in a way that, we didn't have to, those first bunch of on the scale were actually already assumed knowledge amongst non-Christians that we moved with. And might I, this is a suggestion, but I do think in the American context, um, you're able to see non-Christians converted by walking into church because of the milieu of the whole country is a very different kind of place. Um, so that... Um, America's born in the conviction of the founding fathers, yeah? Religious freedom is what drove it. We're born as convicts. You know, Australia's born in a convict colony who hated authority and hated the evangelical Richard Johnson to try and make them, you know, that's our culture. It's a very different place. And so we're far, far back, which therefore means, given that reality, we need processes. I'm going to come to that in a moment. <clears throat> And the reality of our churches is another reality to bear in mind. 
Many of our churches, especially established churches, are so far out of touch with their culture that the possibility of a non-Christian being converted and getting established in that kind of church requires a miracle of New Testament proportions. You know, it's, it is a phenomenally staggering boundary to leap. Um, now, I said this in Perth once, and um, I, I was sharing the fact that in our context, there's, there's a kind of surf culture that comes to our morning congregation and cannot connect. And uh, someone expressed great anxiety that that seemed wrong to say that, given the power of the gospel. And um, we ought to be a church that's for all people. Um, and I then drove into the fact that we are seeking to make our church culturally relevant. And I have to be open for all people. Here's an observation. It's a reality of our churches. Every one of you has a church that is monocultural. Every one of you has a church that's monocultural. You want to believe it's welcoming to all people and that anyone can just walk in here and fit in. But you are... Mon- it might be... Um, uh, I was visiting a church in, in a very distant context and they, they were wanting to say, no, we're open to everybody. And they had a great variety of kinds of people except the culture there was intense. So the monoculture was we're all intense people. You see the interesting thing? I mean, they had people from uni context, single mums, old people, young people, but what defined them all was they were very intense people. So I try and bring my beach culture person who's laid back casual into that, and I go, ooh, freak out. This is weird, you see. Um, So you'll all have a culture, and some of our cultures are so far out of touch that a converted, a newly converted or interested person would die before they'd join you. Um, and often we don't see it. Often we're blind to it. It's, um, it's the problem of, uh, if you notice when you visit houses, they have that smell. They have their own unique smell. It's a dog smell or something smell. And when you live in it, you don't know it because you're so used to it. That's your church. That's your church. <laughs> You've got a dog smell and you need to... Now, I'll give you the last reality. There's many others, but let me pick up the reality of our own time as leaders. If you're leading a church, the reality is that you're already shackled with a series of fixed costs. Just running the church. Um, you, you know, um, uh, managing the finances, making sure the event of Sunday operates, making sure the problems are solved, making sure people get to groups, all kinds of stuff, doing weddings, doing funerals. Doing, there's a whole bunch of fixed costs associated with just running a church, which means preparing a sermon, which means of a, let's call it a 50-hour week, um, we expect our guys to work about 55 to 60 hours. That's the kind of week we're operating with. But in that kind of week, most ministers running a church only have about five to ten hours of any spare capacity. Now, that's a reality that you need to take into account. Now, here we go. How do you deal with all this? Well, you face how crucial you are as a leader for your church. You, the leader, will shape the culture and vibe of the church. Over time, um, over time you will shape it. Now, there's a number of things that need to be borne in mind there. If you join an established older church and you're younger, 
the ability for you to shape it will be lessened. Um, if you've come into a new church as the you know, 35-year-old planted with a bunch of 25-year-olds, you will shape it very much more quickly. So all of these factors need to be... If you've got a church culture that's got a long uh, theological, cultural tradition, you've got a lot more work to be able to shape it culturally. Uh, all of these things play into it. But you are, over time, the key to impacting that church. Without you leading it, it will run down. With you, if you're caught by the gospel, clear about the gospel, you have the potential to bring about profound change. How do you do it? Well, you fuel it with the word and you create a hunger for mission. And you face the realities. You know that? Mission needs to be in your DNA. It needs to be in every message that we are holding to the gospel and holding out to the gospel holding out the gospel needs to be part of not just something you've learned at a conference but it needs to begin who you are now how do you know if it's who you are well if you're asked to give a talk and you've got 30 minutes what do you talk on that's what you'll see who you are is i was at a um, i was at a theological college in sydney and uh, we were having lunch we used to have lunch as a student body together and I was sitting with John Chap. You mentioned I mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, so we were sitting at lunch together, chatting away. Da 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 da. John Stott was at the college, um, visiting, and he was at the front table, sitting next to the principal. And uh, spontaneously, the principal turned to John Stott and said, "Oh, look, student body, have you got something you could say for five minutes?" And John Stott jumped to his feet and talked about the wonder of the gospel of grace, that Jesus died in our place. Did that for five minutes. Chapo turned to me and said, we've just seen something extraordinary. And uh, if you ever knew Chapo, you, you, you just wait for him to tell you what it was. You don't try, <laughs> you don't try and guess. Or, yes, what was that? He said, a man is, spontaneous, is asked to spontaneously speak, and what's the thing he immediately thinks to talk about? Tells you what's in your DNA. You see, he didn't have to plan it. He wasn't prepared for it. It just—you've got a moment. I talk about the thing I think about all the time. You see, now that's the point with being gospel-driven. It's who you are that's so critical to the whole ministry. You will hear that all the time, but it—it it, it will bleed out of you. you know, they used to say of Bunyan that if you scratched him anywhere, he'd bleed Bible, and if we scratch you somewhere, we want you to bleed, gospel, stand for it, hold it out. Yeah. Now, if that is you, then um, every context you will be looking for opportunities. When you are invited to lunch, you'll want to talk about. When you finish church, you'll want to talk about. When you prepare your sermon, you'll... You see... It'll flow everywhere. Um, and it's not hard for that to be the case when you preach, although it's surprising how it doesn't seem easy. For instance, how many passages of the Bible aren't an opportunity to preach about eternal things? See what I mean? Like, we, we, we coined a phrase for it now, we call it worldview preaching. That is to say, we want to see every message from every part of the Bible 
lift us up to see how this part of the Bible connects us to God's grand story to redeem the world back to himself. Now that shouldn't be hard to do because every part of the Bible is there too help us see how God's grand story is to connect himself to the world. Uh, So as you engage with the scriptures week by week, you have, in our case, 45 to 50 minutes. I don't know what you're doing in your place. But in our case, we have a considerable chunk of time to transform the way people think about the world and their life in it, not just to get them with better marriages. uh, There is a profound opportunity. Um, and in that context, in the preaching context too, to provide, to provide an opportunity to build confidence in the gospel, help it see intersect with every area of life, help it see how it engages with the challenges of secularism, help you go through apologetic processes so that more and more you're not just strengthening and encouraging the convictions of the people with you, you're helping them and aiding them to speak to their friends about the things of Christ as well. because they, And you're exciting them about the possibility that if they brought a friend here one Sunday, they'd get all of that delivered as well. Now, every conversation, every decision is all shaped by these things. Um, let me add a further idea. Make everything align. Make everything align. In some senses, you can conceive of building a gospel-driven church as starting a fire. And um, the way you start a fire is best by properly aligning all the timber and putting a spark into the right place and then adding fuel. Yeah? In many ways, that's a conception of getting a church to be gospel-driven. I'm looking for everything I do to add to the possibility to build fuel to heat this thing up so that it overflows and fires. You got it? And so every decision, every activity, every function, every appointment, every, all of these will add to and fuel and energise or fail to or worse, dampen. Now, there's a reality too that I was talking to the guys earlier at lunchtime. We don't have the luxury of a whole queue of people lining up to do ministry options in our churches. Um, And so sometimes you don't have the luxury of picking the best person. But be conscious of the costs of every person and where it fits in and how it functions and structures. Um, And so your aim is to align everything to get this fire for mission um, and you, you, you do this in the context that my congregation member is, is in a world where they're hearing so many messages. Um, if they only hear, if they hear me once on a Sunday and my message doesn't have much clarity about it concerning being gospel driven, then the 50 other messages, this will just not even be an effective word into a cluttered mindset. Whereas if when they walk in the church every dimension and aspect of it is same and the message is and the small group through the week and all of these things begin to align and build energy and heat to move the thing forward. So your announcements, your interviews, your activities, 
Each of these things are an opportunity to align for this purpose. Don't assume that we just do it, we continue to do it. Think about whether it will add fuel, whether it will be neutral, whether it will detract. Let me give you an example of this. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, in the early years, uh, we had uh, one of our congregation members was appointed to be the person who coordinated our mission, external mission work, our overseas mission work. And, um, and he quite appropriately wanted us to get profile of these missionaries into church through interviews. So we do, um, we do a link up with, you know, a phone link up into church through the speaker system from France or from wherever our missionaries were. And it was interesting to see him in the early couple of occasions interview these people. And uh, the interview went like this. Uh, good morning. Uh, what's the language? Ah, it's French. Give us some speak in French. So they'd speak in French for a bit. That's awesome. Tell me what is out the window. What are you looking at? What are the tastes? What are the smells? What's the, um, how are the kids going at school? Um, uh, you know, what are the, how are the locals relating to you? What's the neighbours like? Uh, awesome. It's been great talking to you. Hang up. Now, what's missing? I grabbed him and I said, if you were a fisherman, a fanatical fisherman, and you'd heard your mates have just been on a fishing trip to the Northern Territory and you got to ring them up, what would be the first question you'd want to ask them? How many have you caught? How big were they? Tell me the story. Isn't that right? The fact that this man didn't ask that at all tells you what? Not just that he forgot. It wasn't part of his DNA. You got it? So that you can even think to talk to your missionary friend without asking, how is the mission going? <laughs> means you're not praying about that, you're not giving money to that, and it means now that interview, therefore, what did it do in our church? It dampened. So, so I not only had to disciple him to see that he didn't have a passion for mission like he ought, I had to disciple him to see how he needed to serve our church to get, get the vision of mission by the way he did the interview. You see. I'll give you another example. Um, uh, one of the passions we have as we hold on to the gospel is that we might get people to learn to see that they're, they're serving the Lord Jesus and it's his pleasure and joy in their sacrifice that sustains and keeps them. Isn't that what we're about? We want people to live for Jesus, not for men. Yeah? Now, I think all of us think that's the case, but how many of us thank people for the ministry they do? Oh, what's wrong with thanking people? Well, think about this for a second. If I'm the captain coach of the local football team, AFL, and one of the blokes scores a goal, does the captain thank him for it? Thanks for scoring that goal. That was awesome. Is that kind of weird? Why is it weird? He's not doing it for the captain. You see? So, so 
if I want to see alignment, if I want people to catch the vision that they're about serving Christ, then even my innocent comments seeking to encourage can help or hinder the message I'm preaching. You see alignment? I, um, I was in a church where a young woman put her hand up to do missionary service because the ministry of the word was so stirring and captivating, was worldview changing, was all about the gospel and the purposes of eternity. It, a young woman put up a hand to go to um, a, a South American country on her own to do missionary work. And I remember some of my friends being deeply disturbed that the minister of this church had not dissuaded her. Um, But as I reflected on it over the years, what I picked up was that the man who was teaching me every week about the gospel being central and to die to self and live for Christ was happy to let a girl lose the opportunity to marry and perhaps go into a very difficult place and die because... He believed what he was preaching, <laughs> you see. It's alignment again. Um, and how easy it is for us to undermine the very things that will fuel and energise mission by the small things we do without thought. Even the way you plan your church program. Um, every year we sit down to plan the program of our church, what we'll put on and what we won't put on. The very first thing we start with, and it just seems for us now a, a very... Um, how could you do it otherwise? We start with what things will we do to fuel and energise mission through church this year? And everything is built around that. All our small group work, all our um, uh, incorporation, everything is built around that. So just the way you think about your calendar. The things that we accept or don't accept. Um, there's a sense in which church is like a, a, a very complex system Um, uh, Formula One car, what's the aim of a Formula One racing team? To to get around the track the fastest. Very clear. Now, there's a complex system that needs to be put together to make that thing get as fast as it can around the track. It's it's the, the engine, the gearbox, the braking system, the driver, the support structure all designed to, the bloke running the show, his task is to watch the complex pieces put together to see how they will help or hinder achieve the purpose and to be aware of which things will impact, which things will impact most, which things won't have an impact, which things are trivial, to notice all of those things and to watch and build it. It's about alignment. Um, We need to think more and more like the tsunami rescue team rather than the book reading club. You know, church is not a book reading club. It's the tsunami rescue team that has the word of God to fuel, shape, mould us in that task, which is just Jesus, isn't it? That's how he operates. Now, in all of that, the aim, of course, is to build healthy, mature Christian life amongst our people, the kind that gets the wonder of the gift of the gospel through the maturing ministries that they're captured by it and so on. And in this, let me add another little principle. Actually, it's the principle of conviction versus gladness. Conviction versus gladness. You might grow a group of people whose conviction is to be on mission and they will do it sometimes. But if you can grow a church 
that's glad to do mission, you will go much further. Now, how do you do the difference? I take it the more that people get the gospel and the eternal dimensions of the gospel and heaven and hell reality, I'm seeing. Once you get more and more of that, it won't just be a conviction that compels me, it will be a sense of wonder and greatness and gladness and excitement that compels me, you see. So invest, therefore, in your gospel-driven maturity ministries. All that you do in the work of maturing people in the word, holding on to the gospel, is part of fueling them for effective, energetic mission work. So alignment. If you've come to a church where it's already established, uh, we'll have a discussion time in a second. I'm happy to hear. I'll be interested to get all the engagement. But one of your tasks is to rebuild it, all right? To lop off things slowly, to let things fade and die, uh, to make sure that you only add new things that will build the energy and alignment better. That's your task. If you're a young man who's coming to an older established church, that will be a more challenging task. But that is your task. Um, staffing. Staffing, again, is about alignment. Our first staff member was deliberately chosen because of his passion for the gospel. Well, I wanted him on because I knew that he would help fire with me the energy. Now, in, uh, let me pause there. I'm going to go through scaffolding, uh, personal and event management and so on, but do you want to ask any questions about that so far? Second, yeah. um, let me talk about um, um, building scaffolding. Uh, there's, you wish it were so that I could just mature people and train people and they would be off beavering away doing one-to-one evangelism and gospeling would be happening and people would be saved. In some culture and context, that can work. It's not happening in Australia very much. There are some places sometimes, but it's not happening very much. And I want to suggest to you, there's, um, we need to think systems and how we can facilitate personal evangelism as well as um, maximise the reality that not everyone will be gifted at it. Now, that comes through recognising the tension and interplay between event evangelism and personal evangelism. Event evangelism and personal evangelism. Everyone wishes their church was into personal evangelism, not event evangelism. My problem, our problem, we've worked out over the years is that If you want personal evangelism to work, event evangelism is a great tool to facilitate it if managed well through alignment and all the other processes. And so we've we've not chosen either or. We've used each other to build together. So we've deliberately set structures of event to work through the angle scale processes of contact, pre-evangelism, evangelism, uh, into church incorporation to work through those processes so that they can be used to facilitate greater engagement together in the evangelistic endeavour, which builds confidence for me to do work with my friend. So all of that happens together. Now, once you're aware that that's why you're doing it, you set up the event evangelism to actually achieve a couple of ends. One is to be a good event that works. 
Another is to use the event to facilitate further confidence and enthusiasm for the gospel to do the work elsewhere. Do you see how you begin to build an engine together? So to that end, we've started a number of events. Um, two big drivers for us have been a thing called Summerfest, which happens in January. We took the beach mission concept. We took the beach mission concept where a group of Christians goes off to a campground somewhere and runs a mission for a week. We took that instead of it happening in someone else's paddock in a beach somewhere over there where there's no... We did it in our church backyard in the school grounds and because um, we built in the follow-up, you see. And so we got a beach mission team to come to us and run beach Summerfest. But we did that not just to do evangelism. We did that to create a context where a group of people can come with all their nervousness and all their fears and insecurities about evangelism and do it as a group and actually start to break through some of the fears, you see. And so that's facilitated for us a growing energy for individual emission as well as a slow pipeline of people becoming touched by the work of the gospel and moving through to the next thing, which is life. Now, I think we've got a pathway here. Is that... Where's Scott's going to throw it up somewhere. He's gone out just when I needed him. Uh, hey, you got the pathway there? Yep. Now, I don't know if you can see this, but um, we've thought into uh, the, the steps that a non-Christian in secular culture on the Central Coast needs to go through to move towards coming to a decision for Christ. And what we've done is realise that if because the process of someone in Central Coast secular culture moving from no contact with the gospel to fully matured in the gospel is such a massive one in secular society. We've identified the steps that take place bit by bit that move and we've resourced each step to make each step fire well. So uh, um, we, we have, so Summerfest is a first point of call above newish where people get some connection with church life we then invite them into a thing we call, there's two options for them. We invite them into what we call the summer series. So Summerfest happens the first week of January. We've then built church around Summerfest for the next four weeks where we, pre, we turn the whole of church over into an evangelistic service. And I can tell you what we deal with in a moment, but we've, we've geared the whole thing so that at Summerfest we can invite people into church knowing that it will be an easy connection because we've designed the whole thing to be relevant for them. We've stripped away anything that might disturb or feel weird. <laughs> not, not everything, but largely we've pared it back. They come to Summerfest at, at um, Summer Series. Uh, at Summer Series, they, they get invited or directed to Newish, which is if they've got some Christian faith already, they'll go there and they'll find a, a way to step into church with us, or they go to life which is this one here, where we've designed a six-week course. We call it a series because in our context to use the word course makes people think it's a university thing. That turns everyone off. So life series, six weeks, it's a meal with a talk and question time. And um, this is designed entirely for the non-Christian or the Christian to bring their friends. Um, and so that is a perfectly easy midweek invite where people can come and uh, find out more about Jesus. So we've invested heavily there 
At the end of that, there's an indication of response, whether they'd like to go into follow-up groups. Now, we call the groups that happen after life the after-life groups. It's nice, isn't it? So they can go to afterlife with us if they like, where they get spread into follow-up groups that come after life. And that goes for 10 months. So people get locked into a group. Well, they get into a group for 10 weeks, so they can choose to go to the next 10 weeks, and it will go on for 10 months. Now, that follow-up group is built because of the process of coming to faith isn't just a one-week event or a six-week event. It's usually a 12-month event, you see. Um, and so they get established in, uh, into life. And then we want them to go from newish or life into church. Well, going into a church is a frightening experience for non-Christians or newly converted people. And so we run a thing called EV Startup, which is a four-week series where you can come along and you get introduced to church. You find out about the, the big things that make us tick. And it's an exciting program about the great theology that drives this whole place. And people kind of go away going, Wow, it's just, it really is quite life-changing. So there's a four-week series there. Out of that, they get uh, we have a, um, a group of people who function as the establishment team, and they go to every single EV startup to meet the new people and then personally walk them into a growth group connection, find the growth group that works for them best, get them connected into the growth group to settle themselves there. Then... All of those people are invited to EV Step Up where that connection team, establishing team, will help them think about how they might begin to step up and serve in the life of the community of church. And they'll have a personal interview, they'll be walked through their opportunities to serve, what's their passions and so on and so forth. And then from there we move them into digging deeper. So, now I draw, I don't mean that to depress you. Um, But let me tell you the principles. We worked out that for a non-Christian to move to a fully committed Christian is a process. Each step of the process needs to be invested in to make it work well. Remember one of the realities, though, was that a minister only has five to ten hours spare. So how do you do that? How do you do it? Now, here's the key to leadership. This will, you'll use this all the time, and you probably already do. But one of the keys of leadership is working out where I am now, where I need to be, what I need to, get to do to get there. It's as simple as that. Where I am now, where I need to be, what have I got to do to get there? Honest assessment of where I am now. Use the gospel to shape where I want to be and some pragmatic practicalities and things. I'd love to see that happening. Well, how are you going to get there? What steps do you need to take to move you in that direction? What are the blockages to overcome? What are the strategic things to set up to actually move you into that position in a few years' time? Analyse that. Then work out your 10-step action plan and take the first step. Now, where we fall down constantly is we lack the discipline to think through carefully what we need to do and we lack the discipline to follow through on an action plan. We find ourselves in five years' time in the same church, which has never got past blockages, which has never overcome the problems, which is stifled and stuck. 
Now, one of the things you need, once you, once you see what could be, the big blockage is lack of resource. Yeah? You're going, I mean, I wish I could do that, but I haven't got anyone who could. Well, there's your blockage. So what's your first action step? What do you think it would be? Pray. Pray. There's the first one. Pray that God might give me the resource. And then let yourself be the answer to that prayer and work out how to find the resource. How do you find the resource? What do you do? Yeah, you, you, what you do is you, I need to find people who can step up to begin investing in these areas to make them work as best they can, so I need to begin recruiting. And the way to begin recruiting is to, depending on how far you're back, either identify the people I've got who could or identify the people who could in three years' time or five years' time and work out what I need to do to train them to get them there in three to five years' time. Choose half a dozen because of the half a dozen, two will move away, one will crash. <laughs> you, you see? But you set yourself and you start getting to it. 